Hi, I'm Dr. Gemma Newman, also known as the Plant Power Doctor, and I'm your host for the Wellness Edit podcast with Holland and Barrett. In this episode, I am thrilled to be joined by a good friend of mine, Dr. Rupi Orjla. Rupi is a medical doctor and founder of The Doctor's Kitchen, a platform dedicated to teaching people how to cook their way to health. He is also a Sunday Times bestselling author. He's established the UK's first culinary medicine course and is the host of the Doctor's Kitchen podcast, which I was lucky enough to be on. And he's also developing an exciting new app. So we've got lots to talk about. Welcome, Rupi. Hey, Joa. Hi. <laughs> it's always uh, so like, I know for me, it's like, oh, hearing hearing my bio being read out. So red in I the know. face here. <laughs> yeah, well, there's no need to be shy. Um, it's all true. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I know. I know what you mean. It does feel strange to hear it out loud, but uh, you have achieved a lot. And I think it's important to recognize all of the contributions that you've made, not just to medicine, but also to wellness in general. And um, yeah, it's... Oh, uh, thanks, Gemma. That's so lovely. Yeah, no, yeah it's yeah. true. It's, it's interesting, is it? Like I uh, am actively trying to lean into being less embarrassed about sort of hearing one's achievements uh, while still maintaining humility and that hunger for to do more. Um to the point where in my third book, actually, in the acknowledgement section, I actually wrote a little note to myself right at the bottom after I thanked everyone else, obviously. I was like, you know, and I always <laughs> want to thank myself. You know, you're doing you're doing a lot of hard work and you don't give yourself as much sort of space and gratitude. And if you, you know, practice talking to yourself internally as you would do to a close friend, I think that's going to be beneficial for everyone around you and obviously yourself as well. So that's just something, um, I don't know, it just came to mind as you were, as you were saying that. No, I, I love hearing that. And it's true. It, we, if we talked to ourselves as we would to a valued friend or somebody that we loved deeply, mm. then I think it changes everything. And it doesn't, it doesn't make you proud or boastful. It just kind of gives you that little bit of self-belief. You know, you can, you can say to yourself, I've done a good job. I'm working hard and I'm enjoying the process and I'm so grateful. And it just lifts you, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. And I think it might be like a British thing as well to be sort of a little bit uh, more humble on that side of like, you know, not speaking up as much compared to our American counterparts. So yeah, yeah let's lean into more of the Americanism. I think uh, it's always going to be a good thing. It's very yeah. sunny where you are. Oh, I, it's fabulous. I love it. I'm, <laughs> it's uh, it's giving me a lot of sun energy right now, which is nice. great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been practicing uh, a lot of what I talk about really um, more recently. So I'm, uh, again, that kind of person that will wake up and ha I got like my morning routine sort of down. But as soon as I flip up my computer, I, I get sort of drawn into like emails and my to-do list and all the rest of it. And actually, sometimes I find myself not getting outside until like 8.30 or 9 a.m. And, you know, it's still fairly early, but as you know, getting your uh, sort of routine uh, also sort of aligned to the circadian clock is really important. So I've now forcing myself to make sure I, I have my coffee outside and getting some of that sun energy around 6, 6.30 in the morning. I tend to wake up a bit before then. And that's been really useful for my sleep. That I think is sort of anchoring my circadian clock as well. I've just been traveling as well. So it's a mixture of jet lag and, and all the stuff. So yeah. That's a really good tip. And yeah, you're absolutely right. Trying to at least 
I suppose respect the rhythms of nature, you know, because I'm thinking in the winter months, it sometimes is still feeling quite dark, even at eight in the morning. Yeah. Um, but in these summer months, you know, we've just, uh, we're around midsummer's day. It's just beautiful to be able to get out early and just experience that feeling of lightness. Yeah. Definitely helps me to get some sleep later in the day. So yeah, that's a lovely tip. And in fact, you mentioned your morning routine. So I think actually it's a probably good time to talk about that because yeah, sure. Yeah, tell me, tell because I, I heard you on a previous podcast talking about how you get up at five in the morning. I'd love yeah, to yeah. hear more about that. <laughs> <laughs> My morning routine when I'm actually in it and I'm actively trying to get back into it and struggling with jet lag at the moment is uh, yeah, I, I wake up pretty early, around five five fifteen every day. I started doing it after I read the 5am club um, by uh, Robin Sharma and I was just so inspired by it. I was like yeah I'm going to do this I tend to wake up early anyway I'm more of a, a, a morning lark rather than an owl and I found myself with a lot more space during the day and that sort of feeling of having done most of my work before the, before most people have, have even like sort of got out the door it was like you know it was a, it was a, it was a nice sort of a feeling um to uh to, to experience so my normal routine is yeah waking up super early i drink a ton of water which is basically a habit that i've had for many years from my junior doctor days where we would never get a chance to to stop on the ward rounds and you know you'd find yourself not having peed for like six hours so you're more dehydrated than the patients that you're seeing and so <laughs> yes. I, i've had that habit for, for a long time anyway but it's a very good thing to do in fact i just did a podcast about kidney stones with two urologist consultant colleagues of mine one of them who runs the metabolic stone clinic at guys and he was like yeah first thing people should do in the morning drink lots of water there's a reason why there are more stones during the summer months because we're generally more dehydrated so certainly something to factor in for a number of health reasons and then also i meditate so i got into meditation during my teen years my parents i am from an indian background my, and my parents um they taught me how to meditate and i've been doing that on and off uh, why well, I had been doing that on and off like during my university days as well when I got ill myself that's when I started doing it a lot more uh, religiously so it went from like 60 seconds a day to like five minutes and now generally 10 15 minutes 20 minutes if I'm feeling you know like a like I need it then I'll, I'll do 20 minutes but yeah generally it's uh, 10 minutes a day and I do it in silence but sometimes I do a guided you know sometimes if your mind is racing like a guided meditation is just a really nice anchor to start your day with so yeah I, that that's, tends to be what I do I've had a long-standing back problem for many years when I used to play tennis competitively at school and if I don't stretch every every day in the morning, I stiffen up and I, I get a, a bit of a, a painful lower back. So that's been part of my morning routine for for a number of years. Um, but it is a great thing to do, you know, when you've just been like lying still for eight hours plus. I mean, if you if you're getting eight hours plus, you're very lucky. Certainly not what I'm getting at the moment, but. I, I do that a lot and I do like cat cows and just like morning sun salutes, all the kind of stuff that my, my mum taught me again when I was a kid to do, as well as my physio. And then I, I've taken to doing my affirmation. So I have a, on my notes on my, on my iPhone, I just have a, a list of things that I want to remind myself of. It's things to do with a mixture of making sure that I remember that I, I am loved. I am seen by my, my family, my loved ones, but 
regardless of that, like I love myself as well. And it, again, it leans into what we were talking about right at the start of this pod uh, about reminding oneself that, you know, you have to really respect yourself before you try and achieve things in your day. You have to really come from that position of, of self-love. So those affirmations literally takes me 30 seconds to read out to myself in my mind, but it's an important part of my, of my day. I used to journal. I don't journal anymore at the moment just but i i kind of fell out of, of favor of it but I, you know i probably i'll probably dive into that at some point during the year i've got a lot of things going on at the moment with wedding planning so <laughs> and then yeah I, I tend to exercise go outside with my coffee and start my day uh, so i'm usually starting at my desk by like 6 30 which is like amazing for me because i get uninterrupted work time for a couple of hours and I, I was chatting to a mutual friend of ours wronging about this as well and he's got two young kids and so the reason why he wakes up so early is the same reasons it's just giving yourself that space and you know I report myself that I'm a better partner I'm a better work colleague and I'm just sort of clearer in my mindset by doing that now it sounds kind of puritanical, like just hearing myself say it over and over again when people ask about my morning routine. And I think it's important to find something that works for you because you can still do what I'm talking about doing at five in the morning at the end of your day as well. I, I prefer to do it at the start of my day, but that's me because it's more convenient for myself. But for someone else who might have to start their commute to work at five in the morning it might be wholly inappropriate to do it any earlier than that so maybe for them it's at the end of the day uh, or during the middle of the day so yeah just as a, a, a point i don't want to shame anyone for for not getting up at the same time as me but yeah it's it's a uh, it's really important to me and, that, and that's how i i love to start my days yeah it's beautiful i like to hear it it's inspiring because I don't think any of you would find it judgmental in any way. I think it's great to hear your routine and what works for you. And that's not going to necessarily work for everybody. I remember, especially when my two sons were young, I had a three-year-old when my youngest was born. And for me at that stage, the idea of having any kind of semblance of morning routine for myself was absolutely... It would have been an absolute dream, but it just felt impossible <laughs> because yeah. I had so, you know, so much in, in terms of like my like breastfeeding and crying babies and toddler that needed my attention 24-7. So, you know, it would have felt impossible for me to do what you're doing each day, of course. And uh, there's many other situations where people would relate to that, as you say, uh, commuting, shift workers, people who are carers. You know, it's hard for them to fit in that mm. particular thing. But there's always a chance, even if it's 30 seconds, just to take a breath, just to try to shift your mindset a little bit to make the day feel that little bit more manageable. So yeah. whatever it means for the listener, wherever you are in your journey, whatever your day looks like, I hope that that's been inspiring. It's been inspiring for me. I think I'm definitely going to take another look at my morning routine because now my kids are a bit older. I yeah. do have a little bit more. I've got a little bit more time to myself. I've got a little bit more time to figure out what I want, who I am. So it's nice. It's nice to think about these things in that context for sure. Personally, I love hearing about other people's morning routines as well. Sometimes from the perspective of like, oh, I could do that. And oh, oh yeah, I might try doing that myself as well and see if that suits me. But I, I don't know whether it's like a, a medicine thing, like, you know, uh, the surgical sieves or, you know, the frameworks. 
I love a framework. I love learning about, and, and it doesn't have to be like a framework for your morning routine. It could be like a framework of how you think about lifestyle medicine or a framework how you think about business or a framework of, of how you think about how to have an uncomfortable conversation. Like, you know, all these sort of like checklists. It just appeals to my natural analytical mind as someone who gets like a, a genuine dopamine hit from whenever I like tick something off my to-do list. For, for me, this is great. You must have loved being a junior doctor with your tick boxes. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I just want to say, you know, I don't think everybody will be familiar with why you are so passionate about lifestyle and why you are so passionate about sharing your message of food as a way of helping to heal the body. So tell us all, I already know a little bit about this in fact, yeah. but I know my listeners probably don't. Tell me a bit more about why it is you're so passionate about this. Yeah, so I think everything boils down to my personal experience that was sort of like the firelighter to my interest. Prior to that, yeah, my mum my had some experiences with lifestyle medicine, grew up in an Indian household. So, you know, we already had a lot of those Ayurvedic principles of starting with the gut and, you know, having your turmeric and making sure that you were sort of aligned to circadian rhythms, all the kind of things that, you know, when you're in it and your parents are telling you about this, you immediately antagonize it it's just the natural thing to do particularly as a teenager like you know you guys don't know what you're talking about i'm going to med school you know and i'm going to be taught all the real stuff and then i'll come back and i'll teach you guys about it but you know serendipitously things happen and i've had a lot of our told you so's uh, since then actually but after graduating from med school six years in became a junior doctor three months into the job and as as you'll recall very busy lifestyle, very poor sleep, very poor eating habits. And with no pre-existing medical issues, I started suffering from a, from a heart condition. So my heart condition was atrial fibrillation. It's an irregular heartbeat. In my case, it was going very, very fast. I had an episode whilst I was on call at Basildon Hospital. And I was actually admitted to the medical assessment unit that I was working in at the time, uh, on that, on that fateful day. And that, I thought it was just going to be like a one-off episode. Turned out that I was going to have these episodes lasting anywhere between 12 and 36 hours, multiple times a week with no pre-existing issues, no triggers for it. And I went down the conventional route as I advise everyone to do. Go see your GP, get an electrophysiology study, uh, see your cardiologist, have second opinions. And just as a sort of an explainer for, for people, there are a number of reasons why someone might have atrial fibrillation, this irregular heartbeat. It can be a result of an infection. It can be a result of electrolyte imbalances. Sometimes certain drugs can exacerbate it. Alcohol can certainly exacerbate it as well. Certain people of various heights uh, and athletic ability, you know, marathon runners, ultra marathon runners, they, they can be more prone to having it because of the strain in the heart. None of thyroid those- Thyroid dysfunction as well. Thyroid dysfunction, exactly. None of those potential triggers for me really applied because I, you know, wasn't a heavy drinker, wasn't a smoker, didn't have any of these issues in my family. When we did studies on the heart, the heart was structurally normal. And so what I was offered is an ablation, which is where you, you essentially, it, it sounds pretty barbaric, but it's, it's where you burn an area around a certain part of the heart, it's actually pulmonary vein, that 
stops these misfiring cells from causing this irregular heartbeat. We use various methods these days, like with cryo, as well as laser as well. And there are a number of different drugs that you can use to control the heart too. And as a young, otherwise fit and healthy, normal, quote unquote, health, uh, 24 year old, that's what I was offered. And it was my parents, particularly my mum, who was like, you know, you really need to look at your lifestyle and optimize everything before you start doing a more sort of aggressive intervention. And I, you know, I sort of brushed it off as something that my mum was talking, you know, they, they don't come from a medical background. It's just sort of that the Ayurvedic principles that are instilled within them and, and our culture. But really to appease her, I decided, okay, fine, I will take six months and I'll try a few different things. And, you know, I just started with the basic stuff, like changing up my breakfasts, really looking at what I was eating at the hospital canteen, trying to think about sleep. I did a little bit of research into the benefits of different types of exercise, like yoga and more flow sort of movements breath work that was actually something that i haven't really talked about too much actually but breath work was very important for me simple things breathing through my nose out through my mouth that was literally all i was doing you weren't you weren't breathing through your nose before <laughs> so you were going from literally having every other day every three days you'd have several hours of episodes where your yeah. heart would absolutely race yeah to having zero yeah literally zero yeah yeah and I, no, I, I still, no ablation, no ablation, no, 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 ablation, no, no, no. drugs, no, no, no drugs. <laughs> I was on drugs for a small part of my treatment, probably the first few months, beta blockers and and a few other antiarrhythmics. But we, we went off those pretty pretty quickly, and yeah, no no drugs, all lifestyle related interventions, and and yeah. So, so to answer your question, the reason why I got interested in lifestyle medicine and nutritional medicine in particular was because of that experience. It was like, how does this happen? And even today, it's kind of like, well, there isn't one particular answer. It's not like a nice, neat equation that we're often sort of taught in medicine should be the case. You know, if someone has an infection, you give them an antimicrobial, you monitor them, and then and you, you see the resolution. You know, if someone comes in with these sort of symptoms, it's likely to be ACS, and this is the algorithm by which you treat them, and then you discharge them a few weeks later, depending on X, Y, Z. So, there isn't like there isn't that linear sort of equation as to why this uh was beneficial for me but i knew it worked and i knew it needed more investigation and that's that's why i got into into nutrition and lifestyle beautiful story and for anyone that doesn't know acs is acute coronary syndrome oh sorry yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i think i'm just reflecting on all of that and and you know we all have our own stories every single one of us. And, you know, I reflect on my journey into this and I think it's really powerful to see the journey you went on because you went from a place of having some knowingness around the benefits of lifestyle, but not necessarily respecting it Mm. to learning the ins and outs of what we know in medical practice to experiencing that vulnerability of being a patient And in the most jarring way possible, you are literally in the position of physician there with a stethoscope around your neck, doing the job, whatever. And then suddenly, bam, you're on the table or you're, you know, you're in the bed and you're, you're, you're feeling so vulnerable. And yeah, I think it's hard. It's hard to deal with that kind of thing. Do do you, I mean, looking back on it, do you think that 
it worked out for the best because now you're doing what you do or do you feel as though if you had your time again you kind of rather it hadn't happened like, how do you sort of look back on that time Oh, I look back at it with a lot of positivity. I mean, it's easy for me to say because I've had a good outcome, right? In terms of I've resolved my medical condition. I have found a passion and a purpose and I'm able to execute on that bit by bit, day by day. At the time, it was incredibly frustrating as a otherwise fit and healthy 24-year-old. I remember feeling like, you know, I let people down on the team particularly when I was in A&E and I'd flip into AF and I'd be there and like you would have an ECG reading of my heart and I'd be one of the sickest patients in in the department at that time and I'd have to take myself off the roster and, and you know what it's like working in a, a busy London hospital. You're, you're a person down. It's going to affect the team. It's going to have a knock-on effect, you know, and even in my personal life, when I wanted to go and play a game of tennis or like, you know, do a sport activity. And before I even step on the court, oh, I flipped into AF. I, you know, I, I can't, I've got to take a breather. I, you know, I feel sick. I might pass out. And, you know, all these different obstacles, as small as they, they might be in the grand scheme of things for a, for an otherwise, you know, fit and healthy 24 year old. I found it incredibly uh, unfair and I hated it. I, I, I really, you know, it, it really, I wouldn't say it was a dark time, but it was a, a it was not something I felt. I, I just felt like it was very unfair. I just remember feeling like you know this this isn't this isn't fair. Why, why is this happening to me? Why me? Sort of syndrome. But looking back on it, absolutely, like you know, if I hadn't had this issue, and I, I, I've tried to use this frame of mind whenever something doesn't go my way from the very small to the very big, you know, what a, instead of saying why me or why, this is so unfair, I am always looking to sort of accelerate the learnings from that moment by asking the question, okay, what what are the potential benefits of this happening? Even if it's like something, you know, something silly, like, oh, I, I've missed my flight and, I, you know, I've just, that's cost me like a few thousand dollars and I, I, I can't see my, my best friend's wedding or some, something like that, you know, what are the benefits of of this situation right now? It, it, it's it's like a hard thing to hone, a hard skill to constantly remind you, you, yourself of, a hard framework. But it's something that that experience for me has taught me to do on a day to day basis for the very the very small things and the very big things as well. So, yes, I like that. I think it's hard to get the balance in our lives, isn't it? Because what I've noticed is that when people are feeling they're most vulnerable or when people are suffering because of a variety of very unfair situations, you know, you can on the one hand completely understandably fall apart under that and just think it is unfair and why does this happen to me? And that's completely normal. It's a normal mm. reaction. And, you know, I don't want to be the kind of person that says, oh, you know, you have to stay positive. It's going to be fine. Everything happens for a reason. Because that sounds so trite to say that mm. when there are genuinely unfair things that happen to people around the world all the time. And that, that there is a but coming. And that but is that we're here on this journey of life and no one ever said it was going to be easy. 
it's one of those things where you think you hope it's going to be easy and certainly when you have children you feel like you want to make it easy on them you want everything to go well you want everything to go smoothly you don't want them to suffer you don't want them to feel pain and yet time and again in my clinical practice in my personal life with my friends with my family it's these moments of pain that are also great teachers Mm. and they have things in them that we can learn from if we choose to. And it doesn't mean that we are glad that they happened. It doesn't mean that they should have happened. But the things that we can feel empowered by are the things that we can create from that, from that madness. Yeah, yeah, totally. I think you're right. There's a difference between reframing your mindset and searching for an alternative perspective on your crappy situation whatever that might be and toxic positivity which is where you're just like oh everything's hunky-dory and like you know the the clouds are uh, are parting and you know there's some meaning in everything i do i've been reading a lot of stoicism recently like a whole bunch of books on introduction to stoicism and stuff and you know these experiences that we're having today have been thought through for thousands of years and it just so happens to be documented by the stoics and stuff and that's what people tend to look back on but there is a lot of value in in just finding and honing that perspective of looking for the potential positives out of any situation and that isn't to make sure that your mood is constantly elevated it's just such that you can navigate your way through life which is always going to have the ups and the pain as well and actually growing through that pain that's actually part of life and and learning to find some enjoyment in that as hard as it seems is sort of like the hack to life as i've luckily like going back to your original question luckily i learned that at a, at a young age and i actually look back in that scenario like i was fortunate to have that at such a young age because that's put me in better stead in my early 30s my mid 30s and and late 30s and 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 forward hopefully i'm yet to have the experience of of having children like i mentioned i'm I'm getting married this year it's one of the milestones i'm looking forward to but out of that even relationships in general you know there's so much angst and and pain and and you know uh, friction that you have to get through but that's where you get the joy that's where you get that connection that's where you get that real deep love and um, unfortunately if you don't experience that pain you always sort of like you teeter along the edges of it you don't you don't get to enjoy the real deep stuff as well so yeah those are my sort of parting thoughts but like i said like it's it's nice to have conversations about these and actually be like very open and honest about it it's another thing to experience it and put it into practice. And I think it's easier for me because I, I've sort of experienced a bunch of things and I've chosen to, to put them in practice. But yeah, it's um, it's, it's definitely something that is a skill that needs to be honed on a, on a daily basis. It's not easy. No, it's definitely work in progress. And as you say, relationships can be our biggest source of pain and also our biggest teachers. They yeah. really sort of put a mirror up to ourselves and the way that we behave as well. Yeah, I mean, just think about families. Like I had this conversation with uh, J- Julie Smith and honestly, it's like, it made so much sense for me, like why I love my family and I hate my family as much as I, and er, like everyone listening to this will have this sort of idea of what a dysfunctional family looks like. And we always think, you know, my family is the most dysfunctional family. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure there is a huge spectrum, but 
you know, I, I think that's like a, an, an easy to understand analogy because everyone experiences that, you know, the highs and lows of family life. So yeah, that's, you know, that's a prime example of, of why it's important to experience the pain and, and, and how that can lead to so much joy as well. Mm, yes. It's funny because, you know, I thought we'd probably be talking mostly about nutrition. I know, yeah. <laughs> we, we've ended up going down some interesting esoteric paths, which I mm. absolutely love. And this is, you know what, I feel like this is a way in which social media and, well, not necessarily social media, but I think society in general does like to put people in boxes because, as you know, my moniker is plant power doctor. And I know that yours is Dr. Rupi Orjla, the doctor's kitchen is your moniker and so you know it's all about the you know the food and nutrition but um yeah I have so many other interests in holistic health and spirituality and psychology and you know other things that are probably not even related to to wellness that I you know I think I wish I could talk more about totally it's great to be able to talk to you about those kinds of things too Definitely. I see sort of in this a similar uh, way to you, actually, w- with the plant powered doctor and the nutrition element, I see it as almost like a gateway drug to the <laughs> other stuff, you yes. know, which is equally as important and interesting as well. You know, I mean, we could start off with food and then like everyone sort of understands, okay, yeah, exercise sort of related. And I'm like, oh, let's talk about breathing. Oh, you want to talk about breathing? Okay, let's, let's, and, and then you go into a bit of the research around that and then like how that relates to to meditation and yoga and then and then all the other sort of like weird and wonderful stuff that perhaps has less evidence around but is still important i find you know things like walking through nature why is that important oh well you can explain it through the perspective of your visual system and fractals you can explain it through the photonocytes that you breathe in through your your respiratory system and then infuse into your into your body and there's a whole bunch of research looking at forest bathing from the japanese researchers or it could just be like you know that time that you spend outside of your urbanized environment away from your computer with your loved ones or just in silence you know like how we mimicking how we've evolved so yeah there's like there's a whole bunch of other conversations i I love to have beyond nutrition but so yeah i love food as well i mean i'm sure you do i'm I'm, I'm a passionate foodie (laughs) of course you are of course you are and you know that brings us back to food which uh (laughs) i know that that we should really touch on at least once and um maybe uh, maybe we should do it in like a quick fire type fashion so that we kind of get in as much as we can for the listeners because I know that you've done so much research I particularly love your book Eat to Beat Illness yeah 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 I mean that to me has just been a oh, I just love it I've, I loved oh, everything thanks. about it and you know when I read it I was like yep yeah, yep yeah, yeah this is the book that needed to be written and I'm glad that Rupi's done it and um, yeah, it, it's great because it really helps people to put those dots together in terms of how food can affect various elements of health. It's wonderful. Mm. Oh, thank you so much. I, that was definitely my favorite book to write. It definitely got a lot of people's backs up. But I think, you know, the the way it was written was very respectful of the science. It was educational and it gave like a very sort of rounded opinion, particularly in the last chapter about how, yes, I've zoomed into all these different areas. We talk about brain health and heart health and even oncology, uh, cancer and uh, the visual system, but bringing it back to basics, like, you know what, all these principles of eating, they naturally align with all these different health goals. And that's what you just need to keep your perspective of. It's like, these are the things that I need to do every single day. And that naturally helps my body 
And that will help me with all these different areas rather than having to eat prescriptively for certain conditions or disease. Even though there is a there is an element of that, I think. But when it comes to like general well-being, those are the things we need to focus on. Yeah. And I had the same goal with my book, The Plant Power Doctor. I thought, let's talk about heart health. Let's talk about cancer. Let's talk about diabetes. Let's talk about hormone health, gut health, you know, all of these different things. And then bringing it together and helping people to understand that... You know, these these are not sort of different types of food for different problems. These these are just really health giving, nourishing foods, which is just a lovely way to round things off, isn't it? Yeah, and it, you know what, it, it kind of mimics my own experience because whilst I didn't think I was eating specifically for atrial fibrillation, I was just sort of eating to improve my general resilience to, to ill health. So yes, I was optimizing my gut. Yes, I was probably reducing inflammation. Yes, I was probably balancing my sugar levels, all these different things by doing just very, very general principle things. And it, it doesn't sound scientific, but actually when you dive a bit deeper into it, you kind of learn and understand how everything is very interconnected. So yeah, those are my, my thoughts. Do you want me to go through the principles basically I, I feel like i've i've been very vague <laughs> no i mean i don't worry i'm gonna i'm gonna make you sort of hone oh, okay, in on that cool. okay, it's fine yeah. don't you worry <laughs> um but also i just want to say you know with regard to what you said about putting people's backs up now you can't please everyone you know this is something we have to come to learn in life you you, you do your best to be true to yourself true to the integrity of the message that you want to give to people and you know at the end of the day there's nothing you can do about how that's received right Mm, yeah yeah i agree i think as long as you can look at yourself in the mirror and say you know i i did things according to what i feel was uh, right and my moral compass is uh, in the right direction and this is helping people and it's respectful of the of the evidence base Uh, I think that's the most important thing. If you constantly try and convince other people that you're right or you're constantly influenced by other people's opinions, you ain't ever going to be happy. And and yeah, that's something I think we both learned uh, pretty early on, which again, is something I'm very grateful for. Indeed. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, I love hearing you talk about gratitude. I remember there was a phase a few years back, maybe, where you kindly shared your daily gratitude thoughts. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, I did that for 700 plus days straight uh, without taking a day off. Yeah, so (laughs) about two years. And the reason why I stopped is because I felt that it became a, a bit too much of a chore And I couldn't be as honest as I wanted to be because I knew I was doing it publicly or as in my heart of hearts, there are things that I wanted to be grateful for that I didn't really want to mention. You know, it was around the time that I started seeing uh, my, my now fiance, and I didn't, I didn't really want to talk about that on, on social media. So, so yeah, that that's kind of why I stopped. But I think I, I still do my my exercise every single day, and I think that gratitude practice again it's it's very connected to the sort of mindset that i feel like i've i've built and i continue to build on from my experiences with ill health it's always seeing sort of like the positive accents of your day i'm currently reading a book actually that i think you'd find really useful if you haven't read it already it's called story worthy and it's basically a book about 
about storytelling, about how to tell great stories and all the rest of it. But as superficial as that sounds, it's more about finding stories within your day that are notable. And actually, when you do this homework, he calls it homework for life, where you find moments in your day that are story worthy. It's kind of like what you're grateful for that day. I'll give you an example. Last night, we went for a walk in the evening. I was like, let's go get some ice cream. We haven't got ice cream in ages. So me, my partner, my dog, we, we went for a walk and we went to the ice cream store and the ice cream store was closed and there were still some employees around the door. And they're like, yeah, the ice cream, store, we had to close because the freezer broke. And oh. we started having like a fun conversation. I was like, look, I don't care if it's melted. I'll pay you half price for it. I just really want some ice cream. And we had that like banter and stuff. I will now start writing down these little accents of story worthy moments because that could be turned into a story. And I think it's just those little things that if you hadn't really thought about it and you hadn't been grateful for that little chuckle that you had with someone that you wouldn't have met that day, if you hadn't had the inclination to go and get some ice cream, you would have forgotten about it. And those little moments of, of life are what make it so enjoyable and so memorable and, and, and so, you know, positive. So things like that. Story worth. It was a really good book. Thank you, Rupi. I think it's important because I had a similar conversation on the podcast with the Happy Pair Twins where they told me about their concept of finding mini holidays throughout your day. Yeah. And I really resonated with that because everybody knows how it feels to be on holiday and to think, oh yeah, this is great. I'm loving life. This is perfect. I'm by the beach. I've got a margarita or whatever it is, whatever your ideal holiday might be. And then having that mindset where your day-to-day life is so boring, so mundane, so unholiday-like. And actually, if you can find those little moments of gratitude or connection or joy or peace or laughter or whatever, whatever it is that, that kind of gives you that sense of thankfulness, then that can be like a mini holiday. Yeah. That can be like a mini story that just lifts you for the rest of that day. And it, you know, And equally, when something inverted commas bad happens does it have to ruin the whole day Mm. i mean obviously within reason yeah (laughs) yeah yeah no totally yeah 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 that's great thank you i'll 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 definitely look that up story worthy Mm. yeah it's a really good book so let's talk about let's talk about food and mood let's talk about food and mental health Mm -hmm. would you be able to give me a few tips for our listeners around well firstly why it is that food can affect mood and secondly just a couple of ideas of things that they can add more of into their routine to help perhaps improve mood definitely definitely so i've had a few conversations about this on the pod with with people i'm sure you've you've come across so felice jacker who's a Someone who I would regard as a more than a colleague, like a friend. Like we, we always like chat across social media, even though she's based in Australia. Uh, she was in the pod a few years ago. She was one of the lead researchers of the Smiles trial that I know you've talked about in your book, which is an incredible trial. One of the first sort of uh, avenues into this this field of nutritional psychiatry, which is all the rage right now, and I think it's becoming a lot more conventional to talk about this. Yeah, and things like psychobiotics is the yeah, phrase now, yeah. which yeah. is for the for the listeners who don't know, it's basically bugs in our biome that help our mood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think there's like a wealth of possibilities there, looking at particular live microbes that can interact with our own microbiota. This population of microbes that live in around our body, largely in our in our large intestine, that are integral to multiple facets 
facets of our health, whether it's inflammation balance, whether it's sugar balance. One of the things is our mood as well and how that can uh, impact our mood. There are direct and indirect ways in which it can affect our mood. So the direct ways are creating neurotransmitters that can actually impact their brain chemistry and uh, have a direct impact on, on our mood. Indirect ways are the motility of the gut, how sort of stressed out your gut is feeling and how that communicates via long nerves that stretch all the way from our brain to our digestive system and can signal to the brain things are going good or things are going not so good. And so, you know, everyone's had that feeling of nervousness or butterflies in the stomach and uh, how that might manifest in, you know, certain type of stools let's say uh or just like a general rumbling sensation in, in, in the stomach when you're feeling anxious or maybe even when you're feeling excited that's literally this bi-directional so in both ways connection between your brain and your gut and so leaning into this sort of concept of how our digestive system is communicating to our brain and vice versa and there are things that we can do within our within the realm of our diet and what things that we can include in, in on our plates that can be beneficial for our gut and ergo beneficial for our brain. And it comes down to a couple of things, polyphenols, lots of plants and lots of fiber. And the different types of fiber that we want to be really focusing our meals around and making sure that we're getting enough of are specialized types of fibers that are uniquely beneficial for flourishing our microbes and helping them do their job, which is breaking down nutrients, supporting our gut barrier, even creating metabolites that are the, the building blocks and, make, and ensure like a, a well-functioning immune system and well-functioning inflammation as well. And they, these are called prebiotics and you find them in all sorts of accessible foods. There are a lot of prebiotic supplements these days, but I find some of the best ways to consume them are in things like delicious garlic, chicory, artichokes, asparagus. There are lots of different ways in which you can get these prebiotic fibers uh, into your diet. Plant diversity. There are recent studies looking at getting more diversity in one's diet. So the number that springs to mind is 30 per week. And there are plant points that you can look up online, just type in plant points. And basically any whole fruit or vegetable is worth one and herbs and spices are worth a quarter. And you want to try and get a rich variety of all those different types of foods. Over 30 is associated with a more diverse microbiota, which is associated with better mental health as well. So that those are sort of like the, the key things. So are you itching to say something? No, no, not itching, but I was just <laughs> going to say, <laughs> I just wanted to clarify, uh, you, you don't mean 30 portions. No. You mean 30 different types. So if someone is used to having mm, carrots and broccoli and, and beans, say, uh, with whatever they eat, uh, and that's their sort of routine, you say actually for gut diversity and for a number of health parameters, you'd be looking at adding in other types too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So instead of having the same three types of plants in, in a week, you want to try and get more diversity by getting different types of those. So it, when it comes to plant point diversity, it doesn't matter so much the portion size. It's just the, the different types that you're getting in. Portion size is important. So my third book was actually all about like how we need to get 800 grams of fruit and vegetables per day uh, in a 24-hour period. And, and I, I 
sort of design the recipes around that as well. But diversity is is also important. So, you know, if that's not attainable for you, you can still get, improve your, your microbiota and improve your health using those sim- sort of simple rules as well. And largely plants is really important. So a Mediterranean style diet doesn't necessarily need to be Mediterranean flavored, but one that is largely plants, lots of diversity, lots of good quality fats as well, like nuts and seeds. Those are really, really important when it comes to looking after your microbiota, which is also important for your mental well-being. So their studies really looked at how a an improved diet could impact people with a spectrum of different mental health conditions. They weren't just looking at people with mild to moderate depression. They were looking at all the way, the whole spectrum of disease up to the point where people were on multiple different medications. Universally, the take-home point was diet had a significant impact on people's mental health condition to the point where some people actually came off medications as well. And that was pretty astounding, especially for the conventionally trained psychiatry community who didn't really think about and didn't make the connection between diet and the patients that they're seeing in clinic. And now that study has been replicated, some with positive results, some with less positive results. But generally the trend is, you know, if someone can improve their diet, it can potentially have a beneficial impact on one's mood. With the respect to probiotics that might have a beneficial impact on one's mental health this concept of psychobiotics. I think it's super interesting. A lot of research, I believe, is coming out of the APC in in University of Cork, John Crine's uh, lab. I'm yet to see sort of which particular strains might be useful, but having probiotics in one's diet through whether it's kefirs or sauerkrauts or kimchi or maybe even the addition of a probiotic as well, I can't see a negative uh, impact of, and I think it, it potentially have benefits as well. So I personally don't take a probiotic supplement, but I do take a lot of probiotic foods and I've started making my own pickles as well, like Indian pickles. Again, things that I've been picking up from my from my Indian parents. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, and that's an important point to make. Although the preponderance of evidence does favor a Mediterranean style diet, that's really because that's where most of the research has been. I mm. think you can make a healthy, plant diverse, plant rich diet from any cultural heritage. And whether it be South Asian or Chinese or, you know, African, all sorts of different kinds of cuisines would fit really nicely with that approach. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. And and that's something I feel very strongly uh, and passionate about, actually, because I think in my early days when I was writing down recipes for my very diverse sort of patient population, I was demonstrating to people from Korean background, Sri Lankan background, Ghanaian background that, you know, you can have your preferred cuisine at home. You don't need to have a kale salad or something that is Eurocentric, and it can still be aligned to the principles that are beneficial for your gut, beneficial for your diabetes, beneficial for high blood pressure or cardiovascular disease. You can still have your preferences and it can still be uh, very healthy and in line with the evidence as well. And so I got used to sort of this exercise of making recipes and designing recipes for people based on their cultural background. And I think it's important to make sure that we are providing uh, information as particularly as NHS professionals, that is reflective of that patient population as well. So yeah, some of the the work that Coloring Medicine are doing 
uh, are with patient groups for, from different backgrounds. So West African cuisine, uh, Bangladeshi cuisine we're doing. There's a couple other really exciting uh, ventures uh, that, that we're getting involved in as well. So yeah, that's uh, it's a really, really important point. Brilliant. Okay. Now I know that we're running short on time, but there's a few more things I need to squeeze out of your brain sure, for today. Sure. Let's talk a little bit about your thoughts on the concept of intuitive eating and the concept of intermittent fasting and whether these are mutually exclusive concepts, whether either of them have value and what the evidence says from your opinion as to each of these types of doing things. Is there a way for you to sort of summarize? I know it's like a huge thing, but (laughs) if you were to to kind of give me your thoughts first on intuitive eating, then on intermittent fasting, and then if we could try and sort of combine what we think might be the most useful from both of those schools of thought, that would be really interesting. Yeah, no, definitely. So intuitive eating, I think we need to learn to be a, a bit more intuitive with a lot of things in life as well. And I think meditation for me makes me a lot more introspective about how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking about. And I think that sort of, there are some practices that people can do that will make them a bit more intuitive when it comes to um, sitting down and, and having a meal. Also about being a, a bit more intentional about things like, things that we do almost automatically. Uh, like reaching for a snack or overeating or uh, things that I'm all I'm guilty of as well and so some of the things that I've told people about on on the podcast and and put social media content around is things like taking a mindful moment before eating eating slower and making sure that you're chewing appropriately because that will signal to your gut when you're full as well and making sure that you don't have distractions when you eat. So a lot of people eat al desco in front of a computer screen. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a, it's a very common thing, and particularly you know in the medical profession as well, we're always sort of eating on the go, eating in a rush, and running to a different appointment. So those sort of practices are something that have become quote unquote normal. But we really need to re sort of examine that um, element, I think, and I think that would lead to a more a more sort of positive experience with eating and allow us to be a lot more intuitive when it comes. To that perspective intuitive eating can also be applied to people who have eating disorders and i think i would defer that to professionals who have experience with that area fasting on the other hand i think is a very interesting and effective therapeutic tool but that we still have imperfect information about the dose of fasting that is appropriate for which person. And also, well, I've I've already mentioned it, the appropriateness of the fasting method for certain people. I think we have this thing within nutrition where we just think blanketly that it's appropriate for everyone. But, you know, fasting is definitely not appropriate for someone, let's say, who's pregnant or let's say someone who is in a protein losing uh, condition. It might not be appropriate for someone who is of a certain age. So, you know, there are a whole bunch of parameters we need to make sure that we're aware of and cognizant of before we start recommending fasting. The other thing about fasting is that it's really, really vague. So I've spoken to people like Professor Walter Longo and uh, Sachin Pandra on the podcast, uh, a number of other people who who use uh, and have, have been involved in the research around fasting. 
And the number one thing they say to me is that it's a very, very vague concept because fasting can mean 5-2, it can mean sub 500 calories for an extended period of like a week, and it can mean water fasting, it can mean 16-8, you know. 16-8. The, 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 yeah, there are various yeah. sort of methods of fasting that are out there. And in the grand scheme of things, I heard this analogy on, a, on another person's podcast, actually, I think last week. If you think about a cloth with lots of water in and you wring out the cloth and the, the way you get the most water, the first ring is always going to be overall diet, exercise, and other lifestyle parameters like your sleep and your mindfulness routine. That's going to be like the first ring, the, 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 the stuff that's going to have the biggest impact. The rings after that will be things like supplements. It will be things like the type of good quality diet that you have. You know, there are various ways in which you, you can achieve that, I believe. And then after that, I think there's like, you know, the, the extra stuff, you, the fasting, the, the cold plunging, and then the, the hot saunas, you know, all those different things that great to do. Don't get me wrong. But in the grand scheme of things, is it going to shift the needle as much as the, the first ring? Probably not. And I actually, kind of agree with that i think it can be a very effective tool for certain people particularly those who have metabolic conditions maybe even in conjunction i'm speaking out of term here but there is some really interesting human trial data now looking at fasting as a means to complementing chemotherapies still has to be borne out in, in more research but i think there's going to be some use cases in that respect but in the grander scheme of things i think it's one of those nice to haves rather than the core features of, of lifestyle uh, that i think people can can apply on a daily basis thanks rupee I think that's a really great way of summarizing the evidence we have so far like you say it's been an exploding area of research but there are so many different permutations of it time restricted mm. eating as well and you just think well it's very hard to unpick what's actually beneficial because we know for metabolic health now it's probably not great to skip breakfast and yet we also know that shift working is a potential carcinogen and like so like, how do you fit all of these different ideas about when you should eat and and when you should sleep into guidelines well that mm. could take years because we just don't have enough preliminary data yet still so yeah, yeah. really interesting there's so many spin-offs to this conversation as well like yeah. one, uh, sorry just to finish on that point so one thing that i i do think is useful whether or not it's because of the mechanisms that have been indicated by a lot of researchers or not is uh having a general 11 to 12 hour feeding window to, to use the sort of technical term feeding window like we're, we're all mice here and <laughs> yeah. and some people have suggested that it's because you have a certain time in your 24-hour period where you're going to be eating and outside of that time you're giving your gut a rest and i think most people can reasonably agree in, in, in this world that giving your gut a rest so it can perform all the other activities that we, we've just mentioned is generally a good thing. The other thing that I think is sort of like probably the dirty secret that it's quite hard to sort of maintain uh, accuracy for in, in studies is if you're eating in a defined window for 12 hours, you're probably not going to be having those excess calories, those excess energy, dense snacks like your ice cream at 9 p.m. at night or the cookies in front of the TV. If you're being strict about that, you're not going to have those extra things. And that's going to have a beneficial effect on whatever you're measuring, whether it's things like metabolic health or you know cardiovascular health and, and BMI and all the things that we use in, in research studies. So there's probably an element of that as well, rather than the other mechanisms, the weird and wonderful things like you know reducing 
uh, mTOR and you know, increasing autophagy, this process of cell cleanup where the cell sort of eats itself or recycles the the um, disused parts of like um, uh, damaged cells and, and and stuff like that. So all the things that we like to to think about when it comes to fasting, there's yeah. probably some element of that. Some some very basic things like we probably eat less and we give our gut rests <laughs> if, yeah. if we just have that defined eating window. It's very true. You know, we get excited about all these metabolic pathways, but actually the fact of actually that is that it's coming back to that age old wisdom, you know, about eating breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince and dinner like a pauper and then giving yourself two or three hours and not eating before you go to sleep. I mean, yeah, that just yeah. it, it makes a lot of sense in terms of our circadian rhythm as well. And it's basic stuff that we just need to kind of get back to and get that's probably going to give us more gains than worrying about, oh, have I done my you know exact fasting window yeah. or whatever. This is the wellness edit. So this is a more esoteric question. But I'd love for you to tell me as we finish, what does wellness actually mean for you? What does wellness mean for you in your life? I think uh, for me uh, and probably for a lot of listeners, it changes depending on what what you're asking me. I think if you'd asked me just over uh, 13, 14 years ago when I was having my issues, I, I'd probably say, well, it's not having that condition, you know, it's, it's not having a heart condition, it's just being without uh, any labels. And today I feel like I'm, I'm always pushing the, the boundaries of what wellness means to me. And, and like we were saying right at the start of the conversation, it's more about being happy within my own skin. It's about practicing those self-love principles. It's about making sure that I'm treating myself and I'm talking to myself internally as I would do a loved person, a, lo- a loved a loved one, a, you know, a close colleague, a best friend. I'm actively doing those things because I think, particularly for people in um, in professional jobs or whatever, particularly in medicine, uh, where we're, we're we're quite self-critical and we're constantly comparing ourselves with our peers and and all the rest of it. And I think I've I've learned some bad habits through that period of, of my life and I'm I'm trying to unpack those so for me yeah wellness is is about positive self-talk and and that's what I, I'm actively trying to practice today beautiful thank you we've talked about a lot today I have a feeling I know what the answer to this question is going to be but uh, I'm going to see if it's if it is <laughs> if you were going to give the listeners one thing to go away with one piece of advice moving forwards what would that be Oh, I would say gratitude, practicing gratitude every day, finding three positive things, however small, however big, uh, that you can, you can talk to yourself, or you can write it down, you can just say it into a voice recorder note, you can tell your partner, you can tell your family, you can tell your best friend, you do just tell yourself doing that every single day, honestly, it's a brilliant, brilliant practice. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, and we're going to have to draw things to a close, even okay. though I could talk to you for like hours on end. I know I could, but yeah, we have to respect your time and say thank you. And also round things off. Check out Rupee's TED Talk. And yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you so much. Oh, pleasure is mine. Always happy to talk to you. <laughs> wow, that was a fantastic conversation with Dr. Rupee Orschler. I just love Rupee. He is so genuine. He radiates joy and it's wonderful to hear more about where that comes from and the idea that although we all struggle, although it's normal and often 
expected almost to experience negative things in our lives, it's often the lessons we learn through those experiences that can lead us to a better place. So I really appreciate Rupi's wisdom and I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And remember to join me again next time when we'll be sharing another great conversation with a guest telling us how they fit wellness into their day. Thank you so much. All views are those of our guests and not Holland and Barrett, unless explicitly stated otherwise. Any reference to brands and or products should not be considered as an endorsement.